Okay, Megiddo, the red dot, and I think this is in your handout, right? Map of the red dot. So there's Megiddo. Megiddo was one of the chariot cities uh, of that day and age. When you go to Israel, one of the places you will go is Megiddo. And so when we went to Megiddo, no, I did not. This is not my picture. Laurie found this one. This is uh, either a drone or a helicopter. They didn't allow us to get up that high. We were just walking around on the, on the hill. But that's called a tell. You've heard of the word tell. The tell just means it's a mound. And there's stuff underneath it that they haven't dug up yet. So here's what they've dug up so far. This is Megiddo. Uh, interestingly... Uh, Har means mountain in Hebrew, Har, Megiddo. So it's the mountain of Megiddo. And I want you to look. This is basically going to be sort of, uh, I've got three pictures that almost give you a 360 here. I want you to notice what all is around Har, Megiddo. Okay, so there's one direction. There's another direction, and there's the third direction. What do you see all around? We're standing on Har Megiddo. What do you see all around Har Megiddo? Want to see that again? Okay. What do you see? Flat plain. What do you see that way? Flat plain. What do you see that way? So I've now, that's almost 360 degrees around Har Megiddo. What do you see all around Har Megiddo? A flat plain. Why is that important? Because Har Megiddo is Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon will happen. The enemy forces will assemble on this plain that goes all the way around Har Megiddo. And there is Har Megiddo, and they will then march to the south after they've assembled on the plane. Now, how many people, I don't know, how many people do you think you could get? Okay, so this is a big chunk one way. There's a big chunk the other way, a big chunk the other way. A lot of people are going to be standing on that plane, assembling against Israel one day. This is the battle of Armageddon, Har Megiddo. Whew. Sunday night special, baby. Come on. (laughs) We'll get to this later on in some books, but uh, just so you can see, when we visited Megiddo, Har Megiddo, uh, fascinating to look at the natural geography that God put in place where he's going to hold a final battle. It's like he made a battlefield. (laughs) Gosh, how strange that would be. When you come into Megiddo, you'll first come in through these city gates. And I think, did you include this picture too, honey? Okay. So you can see the gates. You'll notice that most of these gates, oh, that's the stables. Well, mm, you can't see it exactly. Uh, Most of the gates of a city came in at 90 degrees. And you say, why would they do that? Because if you have a battering ram, 
what do you need? You need a long runway, and then you can smash in the gate. Well, if you turn, <laughs> if they make the gate so you have to go in like this, you can't get your battering ram to hit the city gate. You just keep hitting this big stone wall. Not only that, they had compartments. So if you somehow manage to make the right-hand turn, you'll have two to three compartments. And there's two guys in there in each compartment with another gate. So if you get through this gate, you've got two guys who have pledged themselves to die rather than let anyone through that gate. Well, let's say they die. You bash through the other gate somehow. Guess what? Two more guys. So you've got to take them on. And there's another gate. You've got to ram through that. Guess what you find? Two more guys. So it's this series of fortifications to be able to get into one of these fortified chariot cities. This is a military installation back in uh, 950 B.C. Megiddo was one of the chariot uh, cities or chariot military installations, and so it was filled with stables. Remember, Solomon gets horses from Egypt, and where does he put them? He puts them in his chariot cities, Megiddo being one of those. And so there were stables. When you go, you will see on the left um, a watering trough from what um, this is, those are original, so you would find um, that little watering trough. Here's what they think it looked like when it was new. Uh, do you know what you call that little thing on the left that looks sort of like a little bowl? You call it a manger. What? <laughs> Jesus was laid in that. That kind of thing. You know what else that looks like? A little tomb. You know what he was wrapped in when he was born? Swaddling cloths. You know who else you put into swaddling cloths? Dead people. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths and put into a manger. He's This baby, <laughs> this Jesus knew he came to die even from birth. Amazing stuff. Um, when you go to Israel, you will get to see all of these amazing things. So there's a horse stall. There were a lot of horses at, uh, in Megiddo. And so you'll enjoy looking at Har Megiddo when you go. Fun stuff. First Kings. It's the book of division. We've been talking about it for a few Weeks and we've interrupted it with uh, some of Solomon's other works. But to introduce tonight, um, I do not know this person personally, uh, but I could probably tell you two other people who are like this, not in this city. Um, there was one day that um, a pastor didn't come in to work. And you'd say, well, that's every day but Sunday, right? Because we only work one day a week. So he wasn't missed for a whole week. Got it? Yes. Ha ha. We can all laugh. Yes, we're done. Okay. He doesn't come in for a particular day. And his desk 
is cleaned out. And some other people who worked at that church came in and they were looking through the desk and they can't figure out where has the pastor gone. And, you know, they make all the appropriate phone calls. They call his wife and they say, where is your husband? And she says, I, I don't know. He left to go to work, I thought. And they thought, well, maybe there was an accident. No, they follow. There was no accident. So somebody says, this is just too weird. So they find a little white notepad on his desk. And one of them takes a pencil and does this over the top piece of paper. And what emerged was a pro-con list for him leaving his wife and running off with the secretary. Pros and cons. Um, evidently, the pros won, and he left. Just left. Um, I don't know this person, but all I can say about him is what might have been. I don't know what his ministry was like or anything else, but what might have been had he not done that? What might have been? It's a sad story. I know too many people like that. 1 Kings 9 through 11, at 20, Solomon followed David as Israel's king. He taught us how to love well in the Song of Solomon. He taught us how to live wisely in Proverbs. And he taught us how to enjoy life in Ecclesiastes. He built a magnificent temple for Yahweh. But as Alexander White said, the secret worm was gnawing all the time in the royal staff upon which Solomon leaned. The secret worm is, of course, the secret worm of compromise that destroys from the inside out. The secret worm began gnawing away in this particular pastor's life and caused him to finally make a pro-con list and act out evidently pro-one. And the secret worm was gnawing away in Solomon's life causing him, like a slow leak, not a blowout, but a slow leak, caused Solomon to go from this guy to the guy we read about in chapter 11, from whom the kingdom is going to be taken. For of all sad words of tongue or pen... The saddest are these, it might have been, by John Whittier. Solomon's reign ends with a whimper rather than with a bang. The man most equipped, most gifted, most resourced to live a successful life didn't. Why? Why? 
because of the secret worm of compromise that gnawed away from him from the inside out, causing great harm to him, to his reputation, and to the kingdom. Tonight's big lesson is very simply this. Compromise is a choice. Compromise is a choice. Well, let's take a look at 9 through 11. We'll sort of start right after the prayer. So we'll start in chapter 9, verse 10. The worm begins gnawing. Now, back in 7, we saw where Solomon made the temple. And we also saw at the very beginning of 7 where Solomon builds a palace for himself. If you compare those two, the temple was 90 by 30 by 45, and that was double the dimensions of the tabernacle. And those dimensions were prescribed to Solomon. He didn't just decide, hey, I think I'll make it this big. These were prescribed dimensions for him. The palace that he built for himself was... Mm, roughly four-ish times larger. It was a complex of buildings, probably. Uh, One, the temple took him seven years. The palace took him almost twice that long. You can draw your own conclusions on that. I think he went a little over the top on his own um, residences. You get to chapter 9, and beginning in 10, it notes that it took Solomon 20 years to build the Lord's temple and his own royal palace. At the end of that time, he gave 20 towns in the land of Galilee to King Hiram of Tyre. Hiram had previously provided all the cedar and cypress timber and gold that Solomon had requested. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the towns Solomon had given him, he was not at all pleased with them. What kind of towns are these, my brother? (laughs) He asked. So Hiram called that area Kabul, which means worthless, as it is still known today. Nevertheless, Hiram paid Solomon 9,000 pounds of gold. Solomon goes on and he continues to use forced labor to build everything that's going on. And we're told um, about his uh, offerings in verse 25. He builds a fleet of ships in 26 through 28. They bring back gold uh, to the treasury. Solomon's debts and alliances, uh, his tastes right now are greater than his bank account. And he's got to go find additional revenue streams. (laughs) That's what he's doing. He's going to find gold. And when Hiram comes to collect, remember Hiram, he and Hiram had an agreement on the Cyprus And Hiram says, you know, pay me whatever you think it's worth. And Solomon goes, okay, here's what I think it's worth. 
And Hiram goes, uh, I don't think so. So they begin to have this, uh, hmm, they don't see eye to eye on uh, payments and debts. Solomon's got alliances going on that are not very solid, but he's a builder, and so he, beca- he continues to build probably well beyond his means to pay for it, even though he's getting in tons of gold. Solomon's choices, he seems to have become enamored with the good life. He entered wrong partnerships, which Corinthians reminds us, what does light have in common with darkness? The biggest thing he compromised was his judgment. The worm begins gnawing, and he compromises on his judgment. The worm continues to gnaw. And so chapter 10, the queen of Sheba comes and tests him with every question she has. He answers it with the wisdom God has given him. Uh, She says in verse 6, She exclaimed to the king, everything I heard in my country about your achievements and wisdom is true. I didn't believe what was said until I arrived here and saw it with my own eyes. In fact, I had not heard the half of it. Your wisdom and prosperity are far beyond what I was told. How happy your people must be. What a privilege for your officials to stand here day after day listening to your wisdom. Praise the Lord your God who delights in you and has placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king so you can rule with justice and righteousness. And then she gives him 9,000 pounds of gold, lots of spices and jewels. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And by the way, Hiram's ships come back, and they bring a whole bunch of stuff too, sandalwood. And then King Solomon gives Sheba whatever she asked for besides the customary gifts, and she returns to her own land. Beginning then in 14, we've got all this goodness stuff that Solomon is accumulating. Solomon has fame His kingdom and he have splendor. And you're thinking, wow, this guy is amazing. Uh, But by the time we get toward, mm, let's see, 14 in, whoops, I went too far. By the time we get to 14 to 25, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, 26 to 29, yes. Solomon built up a huge force of chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. He stationed some of them in the chariot cities and some near him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone. 
and valuable cedar timber was as common as the sycamore fig trees that grow in the foothills of Judah. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Cilicia. The king's traders acquired them from Sicilia at the standard price. At that time, chariots from Egypt could be purchased for 600 pieces of silver and horses for 150 pieces of silver. They were then exported to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. What is Solomon doing? Buying and selling horses and chariots, and he's making a profit, evidently. I mean, this splendor is amazing. His army, we begin to learn about his army, is substantial. But if someone would turn to Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 through 20. Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 20, and read what it says. Remember, Deuteronomy is written about, oh, 1400-ish B.C. This is about, nine, let's call it 940, so 500 years earlier, God wrote through Moses to future kings saying, Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 20, what did God say? How is our brother Solomon doing? (laughs) Don't accumulate a lot of chariots and horses, particularly from Egypt. (laughs) Uh oh. (laughs) Have a copy of, all right, don't marry many wives. We're going to get to that part. Have a copy of Deuteronomy in front of you and read it every day so that you don't forget what's written in here. Yeah, that Solomon would have handwritten. Deuteronomy, and then he read it every day to make sure he didn't forget anything. Uh-oh. Solomon, he, he's got this gigantic, splendiferous kingdom. He's a rock star, but we got a problem. Solomon's choices right now, he's pursued wealth, comfort, and ease. He gave his heart away to these things, but just a little at a time, like a slow leak. Before, he's compromised his judgment. Now he's compromising his devotion to God. 
and the worm continues to gnaw. Chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Stop. (laughs) What? He's evidently not copied Deuteronomy, or if he has, he's forgotten where he put it and he's not reading it. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. I think love there ought to be probably put in quotes. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped, I mean, just get a load of this. Solomon worshipped Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. The worm is gnawing and gnawing and gnawing in the royal staff upon which Solomon is leaning his wives. He loved many foreign women. And in fact, in verse 2, it says, right after the, the scripture is quoted, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. Does that sound like a person who knows what the Bible says and who's doesn't seem to care. That's what it sounds like to me. How about Solomon's worship? Next we get into the worship, and that was in 4 through, goes all the way down to 8, where he's building temples for these other gods. In verse 6, after uh, he's worshiping Ashtaroth and Molech, in this way Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. Solomon is insisting on his own way. He's refusing to follow the Lord as his father David had done. His choices, following his will for his life was more important than following God's will and God's word. He knew what God said. He just didn't want that. He compromised his obedience, but just a little at a time. Now God responds, beginning in verse 9. The Lord was very angry with Solomon, for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. 
So now the Lord said to him, Since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. But for the sake of your father David, I will not do this while you are still alive. I will take the kingdom away from your son. And even so, I will not take away the entire kingdom. I will let him be the king of one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen city. And the rest of chapter 11 then goes on with his external enemies and his internal enemies, including Jeroboam, who will factor into next week's lesson. Jeroboam receives a prophecy that he's going to get some tribes if he'll follow and obey the Lord. And he runs away to Egypt, and then he'll come back. God's declaration, with Solomon's judgment, devotion, and obedience all compromised, he would finish, but not finish well. And so God's discipline on Solomon is for Solomon's repentance. Ideally, Solomon will go, oh my goodness, what am I doing? And he'll turn the other way. That didn't happen. But it's also to tell Solomon, as well as all the rest of the readers, what will happen, that the Lord will move on without Solomon. Solomon got caught up in materialism, comfort, ease, and excess. He got caught up in the good life. As he aged, his affections became set on ungodly relationships. He gave his heart away to these things, but just a little at a time. And tragically, the man best equipped gifted, endowed to live life successfully, chose not to do so. Every energy, every mental energy, every energy, every advantage a person could have, Solomon had it. But he allowed the worm in, the worm of compromise, and it ate him up from the inside out. So when I think of Solomon, I think of this. For of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. What might Solomon's life have looked like if he didn't compromise? I don't know. I don't know. That's not what happened. But what a sad, sad story. The end of Solomon's life. It's a story of what could have been, but wasn't. And so it reminds me of something very, very sobering, which is where we started. And that is simply this. Compromise is a choice. I know that's not new to you. I know that's not revolutionary to you. But here's a story in black and white of a person who had every imaginable advantage and gift. And he allowed things into his life 
just a little at a time, compromising at every turn, and wound up, in a sense, losing everything. If God were still writing the Bible, what might be written about your life or mine? Is there a slow leak of compromise going on in your life right now? Are you letting just a little bit of something in right now? There are times we're certainly more prone to compromise than others. Here's some times when we're vulnerable. Certainly this is not an exhaustive list, but it's illustrative. Vulnerable times occur when we're comfortable and want to keep it that way. When we're bored or busy or worse, stressed out. When we're lonely and or misunderstood. When we're underappreciated or undervalued. When we're envious of others or their stuff. When we just want what we want. When we're distant from God. Uh, I've been around long enough to see that there are people who have served the Lord outwardly, but all the while, inwardly, the worm was gnawing and eating away. They looked fantastic until finally the rot, the, the, there was no wood left and the staff collapsed underneath them. They wanted everyone to see how well they were serving the Lord, but their heart, they'd been, they'd been giving the affections of their heart over more and more and more to the world, but keeping up the appearance of being a, a sound and solid Christ follower. We're all prone to compromise. Not a one of us is immune to this. It may take different forms and different fashions, but we're all susceptible. We're all vulnerable to compromise. So let me ask you some Maybe a little more pointed questions than these. These are the vulnerable times. Certainly there are more. But let's just talk about ungodly relationships. Solomon began to develop ungodly relationships as his life matured. And so let's ask ourselves some of these questions. One, certainly, that Solomon got into was an ungodly relationship with someone. If you're in an ungodly relationship with someone right now, you know it. 
I'm not telling you. The Spirit of God is whispering it to you. How about with something? Not necessarily someone, although that's possible. Something. Do you have an ungodly relationship with something? For instance, do you have an ungodly relationship with self-centeredness? You say, well, how do I know? Well, do you catch yourself saying, I deserve? Now, you never say it out loud, but to yourself. You say, I deserve this. I've paid my dues. I deserve this. That person should treat me this way. You, you put yourself at the center and everybody revolves around serving you in some form or fashion. Do you have an ungodly relationship with self-centeredness? Do you have an ungodly relationship with self-sufficiency? Self-sufficiency says, I've got this. I got this. Self-sufficiency plans first and prays second. It only needs God to fill in the gaps. It doesn't need God to lead the whole life and direct the whole life. Just these, I got this part handled, Lord. I can handle this. Here's what I can't handle. Do you have an ungodly relationship with self-sufficiency? Here's one. This is one of my favorite buddies. An ungodly relationship with self-determination usually starts with, I'm going to. And then you fill in the blank. I'm going to, not necessarily a location, I'm going to do a certain thing, I'm going to be a certain thing, I'm going to live a certain way, I'm going to... It's self-determination. It doesn't take into account what God may want. It says, this is how I want to live my life. How about the internet? Anyone have an ungodly relationship with the internet? And I don't necessarily mean pornography or anything like that, but just an ungodly relationship with the internet. Can you believe, right? Do you know the iPhone is only 10 years old? Is that amazing? But the change that it's brought over all of us in 10 years ought to just frighten the such and so out of us. Where did I, did I, did I leave my phone? Right, I can't, go, I can't go anywhere without my phone. It's got everything on it. I'm more concerned, you know, if my kids were little, I'd be more concerned about did I leave my phone behind than did I leave my kids behind. <laughs> Why? Because I, I need the internet. I know I checked the news five minutes ago, but something may have changed. And, right, it's making us all, I don't know what that is, ADD, you know? I know my basketball team played the other day. I know they won, and I know what the score was. Do you know I checked it four times again today? Just, I don't know why. Just, I had to see it again. Why? I don't know. I can have an ungodly relationship with the Internet. How about entertainment? 
I know no one in here is like this, but if you've ever, there's nothing wrong with binge watching a show from every once in a while. But if your life is binge watching, that, that's not right. You might have an ungodly relationship with entertainment. I know people, not well, but I know of people, that's a better way to say this, I know of people who spend more time binge-watching a series than they spend in the Bible or in prayer. That's not right. That's upside down. Nothing wrong with, with enjoying a show and watching it. Nothing wrong with that at all. But when it comes to, well, I binge watch so much, gosh, I couldn't get up to go to you know, men's ministry or women's ministry, or I, could, I did, couldn't have a quiet time for four days in a row because I stayed up so late binge watching. It's, do you hear yourself? <laughs> the, the secret worm is in there gnawing away, and it's just a little bit at a time. And it's so little, we hardly notice it. How about complacency? Do I have an ungodly relationship with complacency? I'm good. Everything's good. That's one way complacency shows up. Another way is it's called the win-then syndrome. You ever heard that? When, and then you fill in the blank, when this happens or I get to this place or what, but, but, what, right? You fill it all in. When, mm, X, then, Y. When all these things happen, then I will. <laughs> and it usually has something spiritual connected to it. Up until then, I'm good. Everything's fine. Lord, we got an agreement. I don't mess with you. You don't mess with me. See self-centeredness, self-sufficiency, and self-determination. <laughs> Do you have an ungodly relationship with someone? Do you have an ungodly relationship with something? I want you to think about that and pray through that. Any kind of relationship, in quotes, that causes you to slowly lose your first love Jesus is an ungodly relationship that must be addressed. So you say to me, oh, glad I came tonight. Thanks for the downer. What do we need to do? We need to starve the worm, right? This is what the worm does. You might have even experienced one or two gnaws of the worm in your life over the past years. So how do we starve the worm? Because if we can figure out how to starve the worm, we can leave here going, all right, I know how to attack the worm. Here we go. Let's attack the worm. Starve that rascal. Stoke the fires of devotion. You recall Matthew 4, 1 through 11. What is that story about? Matthew 4, 1 through 11. 
Oh, I love it. I hear pages turning. When there's no answer, there's pages turning. What is Matthew 4, 1 through 11? The tests, right? Somebody leads Jesus into the wilderness. We learn in Luke, who is that someone? The Holy Spirit. What? What? The Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you into some places that you haven't expected or planned on going. Has that ever happened to anybody in here? Don't raise your hand. It's happened to me. I didn't plan on going here. I didn't plan on going there. I didn't plan on this happening. And yet, here I am. How does the Lord teach us to respond in such situations? How do we starve the worm? First, we have time hearing from the Lord through his word. How did Jesus respond to the attacks that he received? Scripture with memorized word. Question, do you have a scripture memory program? I don't care what it looks like. I don't care how you do it. Do you have one? Are you putting the word of God in you and keeping it there? I do the same thing. I can read, you know, I can read my four chapters in the morning and I'll turn around and go make my eggs and go, what did I read this morning? I know that doesn't happen to you, but that happens to me. Where am I hiding God's word in my heart that it won't get away from me during the day? It's going in. Jesus memorized probably quite a bit, if not all of the Old Testament. He had it accessible to him when he encountered this or that, he could answer with scripture. Do you have a scripture memory program? We need time hearing from the Lord through his word. If that's not happening in your life, the worm is going to run amok in your life. But if you have that time, you will begin to starve the worm. Time talking to the Lord in prayer Some people do journaling. Fine. I can't read anything I write. My handwriting is so bad. Can you pray? I don't care if you journal. I don't care if you pray. I don't care. But do you have some time when you are talking to the Lord? He has spoken to you through his word. Do you have a response to that? I'll guarantee you, I'll go out on a limb, I will guarantee you. Um, Right now, I'm in Matthew, and I'm doing just one chapter in the morning, just reading one chapter. Every single morning, I read the chapter. That's not the important part, the guarantee. You read the chapter, and one verse will jump off the page. And that's the Lord speaking to me. I know he speaks to you the same way. How do I respond? How do I respond in prayer? 
if he reminded me, you know, the disciples are jockeying for position. Lord, who's the greatest? <laughs> Which I, just, I can't even fathom they would do that. But I'm so glad they did. And he says, like this little child, be humble. Don't make much of yourself. Oh, good word, Lord. <laughs> mm. So the Lord reminded me today to, be, to seek humility, not position, not credit, not anything else. He reminded me this morning, seek humility. You know what? That's enough for a day. That stays with me. I can think of when I get into encounters with people. How can I be humble in this situation? How can I demonstrate the Lord's humility? I know this will work for you. So I guarantee if you'll do something like that, the Lord will speak and you can respond in prayer. Spend time memorizing his word. If you say, Bill, I do all these things, and I'm, you know, frankly, I'd never say it out loud, but I'm a little bored with this, then I would encourage you to read Romans 5 through 8 again and again and again and again and again. Read about graces, the Lord's gracious, great privileges that he purchased and gave to you and to me and read over it and reflect on what he has done for you and who he has made you to be. And if you get tired of that, um, I'm sorry. I don't know what to do for you. (laughs) Reflect on those great privileges of grace. Stoke the fires of devotion It doesn't come any way else. It comes through these things. Second, don't desire the gifts more than the giver. Exodus 33, God is somewhat upset with the Israelites for making a golden calf. He tells Moses, remember Moses goes up on the mountain, and God says, tell you what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to wipe all them out, and I'm going to start over with you. Remember what Moses says? Oh, Lord, please don't do that. These are your people. And then the Lord says, well, I'll tell you what. I won't, okay, because you asked me, I won't destroy them. But here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to make the way so you guys can go to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. But you'll get everything I promised you. And Moses says, Lord, don't do that either. We don't want to be there without you. Is that always how you think? Is that always how I think? Do I just want what the Lord will give me, or do I want his presence more? Even if he doesn't give me what I think I you know, need or want or have to have or whatever, do I just want his presence more than anything? Or I don't care how you answer this prayer. I just want to be with you. And if somehow you saying no to this means I get a more intimate relationship with you, blessed be the name of the Lord, let's go. Do you want to be with him? 
more than anything else that he might give you. Don't desire the gifts more than the giver. Learn contentment. There's a quick passage in 1 Timothy 6 you you can read. Be wise to temptations, snares of compromise in your life. I love this. Nobody knows what it means. I know what it means, but the the words are old. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, my favorite preacher, said, as by way of reminder on uh, temptation snares, he said, be aware, Satan never hocks his wares without a gilded edge or a sugar coating. He wants you to swallow that jagged pill, but he's going to make it look golden and he's going to make it look sugary and sweet, and you're going to swallow it, and that's when the that's when the spikes come out. Stoke the fires of devotion. Don't desire the gifts more than the giver. Learn contentment. Be mutually accountable to a couple of brothers or sisters, and please keep it same gender. And finally, pursue the great commandment and the great commission above the American dream. I love our country. I think it's the best country on the face of the earth. But pursue the great commandment and the great commission because we have a kingdom that is not of this world that we have been made citizens of. And so pursuing the American dream is not our chief calling. Chief calling is to seek first the kingdom of God and then he'll add everything else that we need to us. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the great commandment and the great commission and put them above the American dream. Remember, compromise is your choice. And compromise is my choice. Let's not let our lives become stories of what might have been. For next week, read 1 Kings 12 through 16. You can do it. 12 through 16. We're going to move on from Solomon's life as we continue our march through the story of the Old Testament. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this uh, sobering reminder of what compromise can do to us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for warning us. Thank you for empowering us. Thank you for showing us the positive of how we can avoid these things as the Lord Jesus did. Continue to transform our hearts from the inside out. Starve the worm. Kill the worm. um, Squirt worm killer on him some way, somehow. We want to be yours. Uh, We don't want the secret worm uh, to gnaw the staff on which we're leaning. Uh, Would you do that not for our sake, but for yours? And we pray for it this week in Jesus' name. Amen.